Morning pathway. Uh, last week, Pastor Glenn provided us with the chronology, the context and the content of what has been described as the Queen of the Epistles, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And today we begin in earnest our journey into its first chapter. Officially, this message this morning is titled Our Spiritual Blessings in Christ. But unofficially, I'm calling it When Deg Dogs Eat at the King's Table. And hopefully the reason why will become obvious as we move through it together. Ephesians 1 is a beautiful piece of prose. It's like a torrent of water gushing over the edge of a cliff, a spectacular waterfall of praise. After the greeting, the remainder of the passage, verses 3 to 14, in the original Greek is just one great big long sentence. And you get the sense of Paul's excitement bubbling over in him at the things that have been revealed to him. They're just pouring out of him continuously in spite of the fact that his physical surroundings, a prison cell, offer little in the way of anything to get excited about. He's a bit like that excited child that comes rushing home from school with the latest excited news. Mum, mum, did you hear what's happened? So-and-so did this and then so-and-so did that and such-and-such and now such-and-such is happening and I wouldn't have believed it if I didn't see it for myself, but I did and so now... And on and on it goes until the listener is forced to just raise their hands and say, wait a minute, slow down. Unfortunately, our English translators have done a wait a minute, slow down to this passage here and they've helpfully divided it up into eight sentences for us, broken up with lots of commas and hyphens to assist our understanding. So would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 9? You heard correctly. 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going to begin our study of these first 14 verses of the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And here my personal bias towards the Old Testament is rearing its head again. So many times when I sit down to prepare and speak on a passage from the New Testament, I always feel pulled back towards the old because it is the Old Testament for me that informs and enlivens the here and now. Our passage from the first chapter of Ephesians today is an outpouring of praise. It is rich in doctrine and theology but for me, it finds its face and gets its character in the Old Testament. And that helps me to appreciate it all the more. And I hope it will for you too. So back to the times of the ancient kings we go. 2 Samuel chapter 9 details an unexpected reversal of fortune for a young man named Mephibosheth. The backstory here you can find in Samuel's record of Saul's kingship, which is written across both of the books of Samuel. In short, King Saul, who is Mephibosheth's grandfather, had turned his back on the commands of the Lord and failed to provide godly leadership. So the Lord rejected him as the king and had Samuel anoint the shepherd boy David instead. 
And what follows were years of jealousy on the part of Saul who pursued David and attempted to kill him. Eventually, the Philistines kill three of Saul's sons, including Jonathan, who was Mephibosheth's father. And they begin to move in in battle on Saul himself. But too proud to die at the hands of the Philistines, Saul falls on his sword and so the young Mephibosheth is now without both a father and a grandfather and David becomes the new king of Israel. Well, news about the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan eventually reach the palace and general panic ensues, the fear being that the Philistines might come to finish off what they'd already started or that the new king would kill the former royal family because that sort of thing was what happened. Uh, when a new king came into power, often he would take out the remaining members of the former royal family so that there would be no ongoing conflict. In the panic which ensued in the um, palace, Mephibosheth snooks him up and she flees. But in her haste, the young child falls. And the end result of that fall is that he is permanently crippled. War does indeed break out between what is left of the house of Saul and the house of David. David is anointed king of Israel. He goes on to conquer Jerusalem. He defeats the Philistines. He brings the ark back to Jerusalem and he and his fighting men win many other battles. 2 Samuel 8, 14 to 15 says, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. But David did not forget a promise that he'd made to his good friend Jonathan, who was the son of his old enemy Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, David asks, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? for the sake of Jonathan. And a servant of the house of Saul is found. His name is Ziba, and he's summoned to the king's presence to answer the king's question. And he responds that there is still one son of Jonathan alive, but that he's crippled in both feet. So David has Mephibosheth brought before him. And verses 6 onward detail that scene as it plays out. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. 
Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. 15 sons and 20 servants, we're told, that is a lot of people to work the land. So this is no small parcel of land that's being returned to Mephibosheth. We get a glimpse here to the overwhelming generosity of the king towards Mephibosheth. Then Ziba, we're told, the servant said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Did you notice in that passage how Mephibosheth described himself? What is your servant, he said to the king, that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now the NIV notes describe those words as an expression of deep self-abasement, a dead dog. It's about as low as you can get before the king. Dogs might be permitted to eat the crumbs from beneath the master's table, but they certainly don't get to sit and eat at the table. Dead dogs are a whole new level of low. According to Leviticus 11:27, contact with the carcass of a dog would make a Jew unclean until the evening. So for Mephibosheth to describe himself as a dead dog is for him to recognise his absolute unworthiness before the king as the lowest of the low. Yet here he was, crippled by the fall, chosen by the king, adopted into the king's household, provided with an undeserved inheritance and dining forevermore at the table of the king like one of the king's sons. There was nothing about Mephibosheth that would make him appealing to the king. If anything, quite the opposite. He was crippled by the fall and for whatever reason, his, his legs or his feet had not been set properly, perhaps in the, in the haste. And so there was nothing he could do about the way uh, that his legs were now. His inheritance was lost to him. His grandfather had been an enemy of the king. By rights, he didn't really deserve to live, let alone to banquet with the king. And is any of this sounding familiar? If you've had a chance to look at today's passage from Ephesians 1, this should be sounding very familiar because what Paul spells out for us in words, Mephibosheth illustrates for us by his life. Crippled by the fall, chosen by a king, adopted into the king's household, provided with an undeserved inheritance and dining forevermore at the king's table like one of his sons. Dead dogs do banquet at the king's table. And the Apostle Paul understood that reality. Not only did he share with every other human being since Adam the crippling effects of the fall and the consequent loss of all rights and privileges of being one with the king, as enemy number one of the church, he had made himself an enemy of the king. Like Mephibosheth, Paul knew what it was to feel as low as a dead dog before the king 
and he'd experienced what it was to be chosen by the king and adopted into the household as a son. And it filled him with such deep gratitude and joy that the praise just welled up and flowed out of him. And it was prose that is rich and deep. And so we're going to turn back now to Ephesians chapter 1 and take a look at our passage for today. And as we do, I trust that that Old, that old Testament image of Mephibosheth, the dead dog banqueting at the table of the king, helps to bring Paul's words to life for you this morning. So Ephesians 1, reading from the very first verse to verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now get ready, here comes that waterfall of praise. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, first things first, if we want to understand something of our spiritual blessings in Christ, we need to understand what it is that Paul means by the heavenly realms. Since verse 3 specifically states that we've been blessed in the heavenly realms, and this is a phrase that we will encounter at least another four times as we work our way through Ephesians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What is Paul on about there? Does he mean that these spiritual blessings are something that we have to wait for? That they're on hold, waiting until we get to heaven? Well, this phrase heavenly realms is translated from the Greek, eporanios. It means the spiritual dimension or the sphere 
of spiritual activities. And we know it can't refer to heaven because in Ephesians 6 verse 12, we're told that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So if we're battling evil in the heavenly realms, phrase can't be synonymous with heaven. Nor can it refer to earth, since we're told the struggle is not against flesh and blood, and flesh and blood refers to what's here on earth. The heavenly realms refer to the spiritual dimension in which God, all the spiritual powers, and all the believers exist together. As believers, we live in the physical world, but we're also raised with Christ so that while we're living on earth, we are also seated with the risen Christ in the heavenly realms. That is where we enjoy every spiritual blessing and it's also where we engage in the real battle for souls with the demonic powers. And our Old Testament goggles come in handy again here with a picture to help us understand something of these heavenly realms. Remember Elisha and his servant being pursued by the army of the king of Aram, 2 Kings 6. And seeing the army with all their horses surrounding the city that they were in, the servant turns to Elisha and he says, Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? And Elisha replies, Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes. Open his eyes that he might see. And the eyes of the servant are opened and he looks around and he sees the hills ablaze. There's horses and chariots of fire. And in that moment, he's made aware of their true position and he's made aware of the spiritual realm in which they're operating. This is a picture for us that can help us understand something of that realm in which these blessings are found. It's not a future time in heaven that Paul's speaking about. It's not just the visible, material, the earthly realm that we can see. It is a spiritual dimension in which these blessings are found. It is the realm of spiritual conflict, but it is also the realm where the spiritual or the spirit of God reaches our soul. So how do we access all of these blessings? Now, that is something that Paul wants to make sure there is absolutely no doubt about. Verse 3, he says, in Christ. Verse 4, in him, meaning in Christ. Verse 5, through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, in the one he loves, meaning Christ. Verse 7, in him, meaning Christ. Verse 9, in Christ. Verse 10, under one head, Christ. Verse 11, in him meaning Christ. Verse 12, in Christ. Verse 13, in Christ. And again, later in that verse, in him, meaning Christ. That's 11 times in 12 verses. How do we access these spiritual blessings? It is in Christ. Our blessing is not just through Christ as a means to an end. It is in Christ. Christ, when we are personally united with him, 
by faith. That's when these blessings are ours to enjoy. So if you're united with Christ by faith, then get ready for the good stuff because here come the blessings. Blessing number one, you have been chosen. Verse four, before the creation of the world, God chose some people. Who did he choose? Paul says he chose us in him. He chose those who are in Christ. That's significant. But what he didn't say is also just as significant. Paul didn't say that he chose us to be in Christ. He says he chose us in Christ. So those who were chosen before the creation of the world are those who are in Christ. They are the us that Paul talks about, the Christians, all those ones who were united with Christ by faith. And God has a plan for those he has chosen, just as he had a plan for Jesus, who was the first to be chosen. At his transfiguration, a voice came from the cloud saying of Jesus, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And then at his crucifixion, the rulers sneered at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Jesus was and he still is the Messiah. He was chosen for a purpose. And we who are in him are also chosen because he was first chosen. We've been chosen for something that is absolutely mind-blowing. We've been chosen, dead dogs that we are, to be holy and blameless in his sight. How does that happen? It happens in Christ. Now, one of my sons used to say that if you didn't know the answer in children's church, all you had to say was God, because 95% of the time that answer was the correct answer. Well, this morning, if you're not sure, you just have to say in Christ, because that's going to be the fairly safe go-to answer here. We are chosen to be holy and blameless in God's sight because of the holy and blameless life of the one who offered himself as a sacrifice for us and to whom we are now united in faith. We're holy and blameless in God's sight for just one reason, because we are in Christ. Blessing number two, you have been adopted as a son. If being chosen to be holy and blameless in God's sight wasn't enough, in love God decided ahead of time that this us, those who are in Christ, would be adopted as his sons. Now sinners are not natural children of God. A holy and perfect God cannot abide with sin. So to put our Old Testament goggles back on again for a minute, as sinners, we are like the dead dogs before the king. We don't deserve to sit at his table, let alone to sit at the table as sons. How did this happen? It happened because, what's the right answer for today? The most important thing that Paul wants us to know, it happened because we are in Christ. Now, our understanding of adoption today is dominated by babies and very young children because that's how adoption mostly works these days. Children are in need 
and they are placed with loving families who will love them and care for them and look after them as their own for life. And it gives us something of the sense of new identity that Paul intends here, but it is not the full picture because that's not how adoption worked in the Greco-Roman world. In ancient Rome, adoption was practiced by the upper class and it was practiced as a means to guarantee a successor when there was no male heir. And a not insignificant number of the Roman emperors gained their right to govern in this way. They were adopted into families. It was common for men in their late teens, even their 20s and 30s, to be adopted. At his adoption, a young male would take the family name as his own. Any debts that he had would be cancelled and immediately his status would be elevated to that of his adoptive family. And he would gain all the privileges and rights of a fully legitimate son of that family. His old life passed away and he was legally a new identity. So we're not only blessed with this new life in Christ, we're elevated to the status of sons with all the privileges and responsibility of sons and heirs. We leave behind that fallen family of Adam and its legacy of sin in our lives and we're elevated to the status of sons in a new family, God's own family. Blessing number three, you have been redeemed. In Roman culture, even slaves could be adopted as sons, but they must first be redeemed from slavery by the payment of a ransom. And as slaves to sin, that ransom was paid for us, verse 7 tells us, in the shed blood of Christ. So we've been chosen in Christ and redeemed by Christ and adopted as sons of God through Christ. And nothing of this happened because of anything special about us. Before God, we are like Mephibosheth, crippled by the fall, an enemy of the king because of our familial legacy through Adam of sin. We are a dead dog. But we're a dead dog that has been chosen, redeemed and adopted because of the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Verse 9 tells us that in Christ, the secrets once hidden have now been made known. No secret invitation to any of the initiation into any of the so-called mystery religions of Paul's day would be necessary to gain any higher level of insight into what was hidden. Because in Christ, God has not only revealed himself, but also his plans for the redemption of humanity and for all things to be united under the rule of Christ. And as those who are already under the rule of Christ and recipients of all of these blessings, we are to live in the here and now according to our new status as sons for the praise of his glory. Blessing number four, 
you have been sealed for an inheritance. This status as sons brings with it the rights of inheritance. That's why we're called sons, even though half of us are female, not sons and daughters. Because this is not a modern politically correct term, it is one that is steeped in the culture of that day. And it speaks to us of our inheritance. And in that culture, inheritance was through the male line. All of us, male and female, whose faith is in Christ, are adopted as sons through Christ. And we've all been marked with the king's seal. We've already been given the first instalment of our inheritance in the promised Holy Spirit who enables us to experience a personal intimacy with God that would not otherwise be possible for us. He is our first taste of the presence of God, but the great feast is still yet to come. Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. The dead dogs will banquet at the king's table. And the inheritance that was lost in that crippling fall will be ours to enjoy forever. We who did not deserve to even eat the scraps that fall beneath the table will feast with the king and it won't be as guests but as sons of the father. You know, back in 2011, two grocers, a postman, a butcher and his wife, and the owner of the local pub in a small village in the UK near to where the Middleton family lived got the shock of their lives to receive a gold embossed invitation from the Queen to attend the wedding of Prince William to Kate Middleton. The grocer told reporters, when my wife saw the envelope with the ER sign on the front, she screamed, it's tremendous news, a total surprise, we are overjoyed, he said. Well, theirs was a short-lived brush with earthly royalty. They arrived as commoners, they enjoyed the festivities of the day and they left again as commoners. A little more excited, perhaps with a few mementos from the day and an interesting story to tell, but otherwise unchanged. We also have received an invitation from royalty and perhaps you wouldn't know it, because most of us hardly seem anywhere near as overjoyed as that grocer in Bucklebury was. Our invitation, however, is for much more than just a short-lived brush with royalty. We are invited to become members of that royal family, to arrive as commoners and leave as sons of the King of Kings. In every sense, it is a life-changing invitation. And if you haven't responded yet, you must say yes to Jesus and enjoy all of those spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. If you have already responded in the affirmative, then revel in it as Paul did. No prison cell could hold back his waterfall of praise. Once he realised the depth of his spiritual blessings in Christ, the praise just flowed out of him. 
They are intended to stir us, as Paul repeats three times in this passage, to the praise of his glory. So read and reread this. Read it when life is good and read it when life is hard. Allow it to stir you to embody the reality of just who you are in Christ and to live a life of praise, service and adoration. Would you join with me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for the unexpected reversal of fortunes that we have in Christ, undeserved and unexpected. But Lord, those of us who are in Christ know the very great blessing of being a son of God. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for all that he did on the cross that we might be part of your family. Thank you, Father. Amen. We're going to sing now the song Amazing Grace.